That last song, I just was, I just wanted to read that section of that last song. Can I read that? Before this is not part of the sermon, I'm just gonna read it because it's in Revelation five. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Then I, that's John, was crying greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, Stop crying. Behold, the lion who is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll. Then I saw in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures in the midst of the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out on all the earth. And he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne, praise God. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints... And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you made them to be a kingdom and a priest to our God and they will reign upon the earth. And later on it says that these many angels and elders and all kinds of people were crying out with a loud voice saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And to him who sits on the throne to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And all the elders and everyone who falls down say, Amen, praise God. That, just a little glimpse we have right down here. We just sang that song, just a little glimpse. What's, in heaven, Okay, this is a little small taste of heaven, right? Praise God. Anyway, that, that's, 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 oh, I'm excited now. Okay. Hey, if you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Good morning, everyone, again. Good morning, everyone who's watching online. Uh, good to see everyone. All right. Gonna back that up. All right. Ephesians 6. We are in a, we are studying uh, spiritual warfare. And normally we go through books of the Bible, and we're just t- we're kind of in between books. So we've done Hebrews, James. We just got finished Genesis. We've done most of John, Sermon on the Mount. We did, but I felt led to do this before we go on to our next book. So we're we're in this uh, spiritual warfare series, and I can't tell you how much longer we'll be, and it'll be a while. So let's put it that way. I'm going to read the the main chunk of verses ten through to 20, but we're, we're still on one phrase in, in verse 11, okay? We're on one phrase. We'll get back to that, okay? So let's read with me, um, read with me, uh, chapter 6 of Ephesians, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, having taken up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, also receive the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times with all prayer. I can't wait till we get to this verse. Because this is really the whole thrust of the whole spiritual battle thing, is prayer. But we'll be, okay, praying at all times with all prayer and petition in the Spirit, to this end, being on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And then he says, now, uh, as well, as on, on my behalf, 
Pray for me that the words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Paul says, I need prayer too. <laughs> God, give me words, Lord, for which I'm an ambassador in chains so that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Okay, so we've been learning some lessons in spiritual warfare. The first lesson we learned was this, that Jesus Christ is the victor. It starts there. Jesus Christ has is victorious. So we don't fight from position to get victory. We fight from victory. That's very important. Because the devil will try to say, you can't win. Well, you're right. Without Christ, I can't win. But, but Christ has already defeated you. <laughs> He's already disarmed you. Right? So, see, he'll try to do is he'll try to give you things. If you don't know that, then he'll lead you with, with those lies. All right? So the first thing is Jesus Christ is victorious. And when he rose from the dead, and he's, we just read, he took the scroll, he opened the seals, and no one else. He's at the right hand of the Father, okay? He's far above, Paul says, all those rulers and authorities, which we'll get to next week. He's far above them, and he disarmed them. And he, and, he, and he took the people that those strong uh, spiritual realities had had, had, had had this all in bondage. He, he set us free, right? So the first rule, Jesus Christ is the victor, right? Um, but then we, we saw that, that, <clears throat> that spiritual battle often, he, how, how he does it is the enemy will attack how you think, right? He'll attack what? He'll try to influence what and how you think. That's why he's, Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, that's, that's, that's where the battlefield, yes, there's, spiritual, there's the spiritual realm as well, but even with our own lives, there's a battlefield up here. Oh boy, is that intense sometimes, right? And then we looked at, we started looking at the schemes. That was the first scheme, it was sort of like attacking the mind. But then we started looking at a major scheme that he does. Look at verse, um, look at verse eleven. By the way, that's the schemes of the devil. You see that? That's where that's really where we're at. We're camping out there for. We started looking at temptation because of if Satan can't get you off from standing firm, and the whole goal is to stand firm, right? He says that in verse ten, in verse eleven, in verse thirteen, in verse fourteen. You're to stand firm, right? And he'll attack you directly like that. He'll he'll accuse you. He'll try to get you. He'll try to knock you down. Let's put it that way. But if you can't take that approach, he'll try to allure you and entice you through temptation. And he's very subtle at that. And I had three points I was going to make. I made one point last week, and that was this. The timing of his temptation is crucial when he attacks. And the timing of it. And we went through, went through a lot of examples of that. Well, so, so today, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to do this. Take two more points, right? I want to look at the appeal of the temptation and the approach of the tempter, okay? The, the appeal and the approach, okay? Temptation, first of all, the appeal. So when Satan tempts, and by the way, when he, attempt, when he attempts, when he attempts to tempt, is that a... <laughs> he's going to, he's going to, there's, there's, we are facing a battle on three fronts. We know uh, three areas. One, the, 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 well, First John two sixteen, go there. You guys know this verse, but just go there. Let's just go there. First, we'll just we'll just start there real fast. And I can tell I might not be able to get through the first point. Oh well, but I'll make it work. First John. Isn't Bible study fun? Praise God. First John two sixteen. Here here it is. He says. <clears throat> First of all, in verse 15, he says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. For everyone anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, here it is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Here's what, so temptation often focuses on those things. And it comes in those fronts. The world, the flesh, right? Uh, the eyes. Uh, eyes, uh, something that looks good to me, right? I mean... Have you guys ever overshopped before? <laughs> right? Christmas time where you turn on some of those shopping networks and it's hard to say no, right? 
I need that, I need that, I need that, you know, it's not, I mean, that's just material things. And we live in a very materialistic, we say, I need more, I need more, I need more. That's, that's, that's an appeal. And it looks good to me. Or, or that's the eyes. The eyes, uh, something that looks good to me. Uh, the lust of the flesh, something that makes me feel good. Right? I have, I have needs. Right? Um, I have, I have, I have things I, I need. Yes, you have needs. But then the, the tempter tries to tempt you to go beyond God's parameters of meeting those needs. Right? I need a car. Well, you, you go and buy a car. You don't steal a car. <laughs> I need a, 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 I need a woman in my life. Well, you marry somebody, and then you stick with that person. You don't go beyond that to meet your needs. But the tempter will try to say, well, just meet those needs however you want. Right? And then pride. Something makes me look good. So here's it is. Something, something that looks good to me, that's the eyes. Something that makes me feel good, that's the lust of the flesh. And something that makes me look good. I want people to respect me. I want people to like me. I want people to, you know, and it's all about, I want to have that position of, you know, glory and honor, you know, the whole, the whole thing. And, that, and he appeals to that ego center, the ego or that, 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 that desire to be looking. So he appeals to the pride and he tempts you with, with, with taking matters into your own hand, with being in a position. And go to Genesis 3. I just want to look at Genesis, this is like a case study for Genesis, Genesis 3. It's, it's the fall. And I just want to point something out to you here. Genesis 3. And you guys are familiar with this, but this by way of reminder. Genesis 3. Watch this. Look in verse 1, okay? Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it. You should not touch it lest you die. He didn't say it lest don't don't touch it. He says don't eat from it. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall surely not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat it from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, here it is right there. Here's the subtlety of it. He says, Eve, you get to decide whether God is being truthful. Right? That's not going to happen. You, you die, sure. You get to decide whether God means what he says. So you become a decider of whether you, you put God on the judgment seat, on the witness stand, and you cross-examine God is what he's saying, right? You get to decide your fate. God knows that when you eat, you'll be like him. You're not going to die. Nothing's going to happen to you. You can do this and get away with it and not be affected. Well, that's so subtle, isn't it? Because there's part of us that, wants, that has that, that ego, that pride of life, that wants to be in charge. And the first sin right here is Eve deciding that she'll decide what's good for her and not God. The tempter brings Eve into a position of decider, the decider of things she gets to evaluate and judge whether God, what he says is true or fair. Eve, you get to say, decide what's right for you. What's right for you is right for you. Right? Have you heard this before? It's the same lie, right? You get to determine what's right or true. You don't need God's help. You can do what you want. That's very subtle. That appeals to pride. It means I get to decide my, my fate. In a sense, Adam and Eve decided not just their fate, but the rest of our fates as well. You say, well, I wasn't there in the garden. You're right, but if you were in the garden, you would have done the same thing. So he appeals to that pride, and he appeals to those needs that you think you feel. Go to Luke chapter 4. Go here. There's another example. Now, Interesting. The first temptation with Adam and Eve, now this next temptation with Jesus Christ, who in one sense is a second Adam, as Paul says. 
and he's going to sort of walk in the footsteps and pass the test that Adam and Eve fell, fell on, right? He also walks in the footsteps of Israel and passes their test as well. But Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was being led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when when they had finished, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Now, let's stop right here, because I'm going to use this as an example. He's now appealing to his need for food. There's nothing wrong with having food, right? But Jesus Christ is living as, remember, he's God. He's 100% God, 100% man. Hypostatic union, technical phrase, right? And what the devil is trying to say is, listen, you need to meet that need. So why don't you take your son of God prerogative and change that stone into bread? Like, take a shortcut, Jesus. There's an opportunity. These stones look like loaves of bread. Somebody made bread yesterday, or somebody, who was it? Uh, you made bread. There's like, uh, who, who had, somebody had, uh, uh, you know, like, uh, like the roundest, you know, like the bread, like the, like the sourdough, the brown, you go to like a farmer's market, you know, and you see it. Imagine now you're in the, you've been fasting for 40 days, and it says, and, and then he become hungry. That's an understatement. Yeah, he's really hungry. So things are like, oh, that, that looks like it could be in bread. And so he's appealing to your need for, for food. That's a good thing. But what he's doing, though, is saying, meet that need in a way that God has not ordained. And right now, Jesus, you're going through a test to live by faith as, if, as the way that man was meant to live by, depending on God for provision. You see that? It's very, you see how, that's so subtle. Take a shortcut. Hey, it's right there. And so temptation always des, de, appeals to some basic need and desire, but it always goes beyond the limits that God has set forth. Again, you're a single guy. You see a single girl. She's attractive. You want to cross that line and live like you're married? When you're not, that's the forbidden bread, right? Oh, I have needs. Of course you have needs. If your heart is pumping, of course you have needs. But why don't you trust God to to allow you guys to come together in holy matrimony, you know, and engage that way? It's more than just meeting your needs in your way. It's meeting, it's allowing God to meet your your needs through His way. One takes, one is easy to give into, one takes a lot of faith and trust, and that's the whole point. Had Adam and Eve go back to the garden and said, hey, uh, yeah, we can eat that, but God has said not to, we're not going to eat it, and we're not going to follow that, your words. I'm not going to put myself in position to say, well, God says it's true or not true. It would have saved us a whole lot, right? So the promise, or the, the problem, is that when we try to meet some need in a way other than God has promised or allowed us to and so sin makes fulfill takes to try to um, sin tries to fulfill that need in a way that god has not ordained and that's why it's sin stay with are you guys still with me in, in luke chapter four yeah. so here's what else so here's here's what else the enemy does he not only appeals to your needs he appeals to your mind with logic and reasoning Think about this. Look at this. Look at look with me again at Luke chapter four. The devil says, "If you are the son of God, by the way, that can also be translated since you are the son of God." It works both ways in Greek. Tell the stone to become bread. Now think about this. The enemy will often come to you with something reasonable. Jesus, you have been fasting for forty days. You know it is. 
reasonable for you to eat, right? It makes sense. It's logical. Eat this. But the test here is, would Jesus put his fleshly need above his dependency on God the Father? That's the test. It's reasonable to have to eat when I'm hungry. How many of you guys let, get hangry? And your spouse says, you're hangry, eat something, because I don't want to see another... No, I'm, I'm kidding. Yeah, we, all get, we, get, we get that way, right? And so here's what the devil does. It's like, you have a need that has to be met. By the way, this is only natural, right? Oh, hold on, hold on. <laughs> Okay, so hunger is a natural need, but then you have other so-called needs that the devil says, well, you were born with this desire. You might as well just give in to the desire. I'm just doing what comes natural to me. Hello. That has been used as an excuse to engage in all kinds of fleshly, lifestyles and sinfulness i like i'm just going to say here's a guy says i like girls so i just get them i like money so i just try to live for it and and i just i have this natural need for things but just because something is natural doesn't mean it's right well it's not fair if i was born with this natural inclination towards a certain thing why am i held accountable because you're born in sin (laughs) Think about this. If we all gave in to our natural inclinations, we would be a mess. Giving in just because it feels natural, because you think that's right, doesn't make it right. And God does not, see, the devil uses that logic. You know, if it's natural, then I must, it must, I was born with this, so that means I have to give in to it because it's natural. Time out. No, you don't consider the fact that there is fallenness in you. There's sin that dwells in you. And by the way, God is not against using reasoning and logic, right? But you, God is, he wants that to be informed and based on the truth rather than your feelings or your lusts. I mean, he says in, in Isaiah 118, come now and let us reason together. He's speaking to Israel. Uh, Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they will be white uh, like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. In fact, he says, my way of thinking is not your way of thinking. So you think natural, and and Paul says, like the natural man thinks a certain way, it comes naturally, and God's wisdom is way above that. In Isaiah 55, he says, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near, Here it is, watch this. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. So naturally, everything that we come naturally, thoughts, feelings are opposite of God, right? But the devil, he he appeals to those things, right? To your needs and to your reasoning. That's so, so subtle. So if it feels good, do it, right? Is that not the message of the world? If it feels good, do it. You determine what's right, Eve. You're the boss of you. No God is telling you. That's Satanism in a nutshell. Live for self, promote self above everybody else. That is the message of the world. And somehow it has crept into the church. And somehow... And we have, there's this battle, we still, as, even as believers, we have this battle, don't we? Let's, just not, let's be honest here, right? If there's no battle, then you're dead. Right? If you feel the battle every day, you're alive, and you know the battle, and you're engaging, and you're like, Lord, but sometimes a temptation, sometimes, you know, what do I... And so that, that's where the spiritual battle is going on. So good news, if you have that battle and there's a struggle, Good. <laughs> But you have to recognize, what is the devil trying to appeal to you? What is he he's trying to get his hook in you, right? By the way, if you've given in and you know what that feels like to have that hook in you, 
and to have as if something happens and all of a sudden you just like become like this robot, just give in, then that's bondage. And Jesus Christ can set you free from that. See, Paul says that natural man does not think like God or even reasoning like him. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things that he himself is appraised by no one for who has the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. And that's why he even warns in Colossians Uh, watch out that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ so Jesus understood that and that's why he says verse 4 Luke 4, 4 it is written man shall not live by bread alone The fleshly desire is to eat or to turn that stone into bread, right? The pride desire, in a sense, the appeal of pride is to say, take the prerogative and and say, just usurp that and cheat a little bit and, and, and turn that into bread. And Jesus, who in this test, he's living as a man depending on God. That's the whole point. Because it says that the Spirit of God drove him into the wilderness so you know he's. We know that he's the the Holy Spirit's with him, but he has to be tested because he has to pass the test that Adam failed at. And so he says, "Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God." Amen. While he's saying that, if that was us, I, my flesh would be like, "Well, yeah, I, I need to." So there's that there's that battle, and Jesus Christ passes that battle, passes that test. Praise God, right? And so that's one thing the devil also does. He appeals to having you put yourself first. If he can't appeal to your, to your, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, pride of life, of course, all of that wrapped in their one is saying, you put self number one. You look out for number one. Me, myself, and I. And some people, their favorite word in their vocabulary is me, mine. Right, and you can't teach. You don't have to teach anyone that. That's that comes natural, doesn't it? It's mine. It's my toy. That's my food. That's my you know. And we call this is my, we huddle up like that, you know. And we kind of get all, you know, we, my precious, you know, little <laughs> my precious, you know. And it it's just uh, Lord of the Rings reference. Yeah, yeah, they get that. In fact, Peter does this when he says, Jesus, you're not going to go to the cross. Lord, forbid it that you go to the cross. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. For you are a stumbling block to me, and you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, if anyone wish, wish to follow me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. That's hard work, and that's painful work. Because the flesh doesn't go down easy. And so he attempts you to look to yourself, to depend on yourself, to raise yourself up. Did I say I was going to go through two points today? We had this last week, didn't we? It's okay, because I'm, I'm, I'm because there's there's deep things God wants to show, right? So, so go with me to First Chronicles 21. This is just another example, the example of looking to yourself in this in this appeal of temptation. First Chronicles 21. As back to the left, you'll find uh, if you find Samuel, then Kings, then Chronicles. This temptation to rely on yourself. 
Now, I know, what I'm not saying is there aren't times when God calls you to be a self-starter, to be a type A. I'm a type A. My dad's a type A. My mom's type A. Those are good people. But when you are a type A, depending on self rather than God, that's, that's not good. So here's a scene. David, King David, right? Who was a shepherd boy when he was anointed king. He defeats Goliath with the sling and the stone. By the way, if you've ever seen these uh, people live in the Middle East, they have the slings, and they, they will kill somebody. <laughs> Those stones will kill people. He's anointed king. He's a man after God's own heart. He has been victorious over his enemies. He's been successful. And all along, even when he comes against Goliath, he goes, I come to you. He goes, in the name of the Lord, basically, he's relying on God to knock that giant down. It's not the stone that does it, although he has to throw the stone. But his trust is not in that stone. His trust is in the God who will knock that that giant, that giant down. He says, I had sheep and bears and lions would come after my sheep. And God helped me to, to, to get my sheep out of that lion's mouth and hit that one and rescue him. So if God can do that for me now, he'll do that against... So that was his attitude, right? A man after God's own heart. But now David, is, years have passed, and David's been successful. And then it says in... First Chronicles 21. Then Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the princes of the people, go count Israel from Beersheba to Dan. That's from Dan is in the north, Beersheba is in the south. The whole country. Go and number Go count Israel and bring me word that I may know their total count. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. But my king, the, my, my lord, the king, are they not all my lord's servants? Why does my lord seek this thing? Why should there, he cause guilt to Israel? What's going on here? All along it has been God who is giving him victory. It was, it was the Lord who, who um, freed them from bondage. Je Moses comes to Pharaoh, let my people go. And the people were not armed with machine guns. They had a man with a staff, but a God who would set them free. And when they got out of Egypt, it was the Lord who provided for them along the way. And when they finally got to the promised land and got into the promised land, it was the Lord who went before them to fight their battles. And you read that in the book of Joshua, and you, you look at the, the scenarios there, and it was the Lord who would be their captain who would fight for them. And it was the Lord who worked in David's life to fight for him and give him victory. Now all of a sudden, David says, count the number of people. Why? Because I want to make sure I'm strong enough. David shifts from relying on the Lord to relying on what he brings to the Lord. Count, and Joab recognizes it. Joab is like, David, what are you doing? <laughs> this is sinful. Why? Because God can use 300 men with Gideon against thousands of Midianites. Why do you care if there's 100,000 or even 10 people who are in Israel, if God is going to fight for you, you rely on Him, not yourself. Amen. Right? Yep. And so the temptation here, in David's case, of course, God judged him for that and said, hey, I'm going to punish you, son, but what are you doing? There is a change. Here's what happens. Rather than looking to the Lord to do the things of God, you're looking to your, your, your strengths, you're looking to your gifts, you're looking to what you can give God as if that accounts for anything. Okay, let's break it down this way. Building a church 
does God, I want God to build this church, not with fancy marketing, although Facebook's good, right? I want God to build this church in such a way they say, that's the Lord and not that guy. Okay, because all I have to give the Lord is not five loaves and two fish. I have crumbs to give to God and say, God, do with what you do with these crumbs. Because that's all I have to give. Let it be that I don't rely on on my intellect or my abilities or my anything, my personality. I don't have a personality that's, you know, some of these people have the great personalities and people are doing beware of following a man. We, we, I think this is happening. This has happened in, our, in in the church, at least in America, is that we get enamored with a man and we don't follow a man, and we put all our eggs back in uh, eggs in one basket. Listen, I help you guys move. I'm tired. Sorry. <laughs> so my mouth is a little. <laughs> my mouth is hitting the the snooze bar back at home right now. What was I saying? What was that? Be careful of following a man. It is so subtle. Okay, Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Which tells me the gates of hell are trying to prevail against that. Which means no man, no personality, no marking, no nothing. It's got to be God. Why is it that Jesus picks tax collectors and sinners and ex-prostitutes and Crazy, not crazy people, people from all, fishermen. Crazy fishermen, right? Why does he pick those kind of people? Because he wants to show himself strong through those who people are like, wait, you weren't trained. You're a fisherman. Well, you're, there's power come from your mouth. That's the Lord. All right? The minute we look to ourselves and say, oh, it's all on me, we've blown it. Right? That, that's the subtlety is we want to say, well, I contributed to this. No, you didn't. Take your names out of the credit. It's all God. We say, Lord, you're blessed. I don't want any credit. You know, I want to be like the angels in heaven. They're covering their face, they're covering their body. They're just like, okay, all glory to you, God. That is our attitude. That's spiritual warfare right now. Because spiritual warfare says, well, can, can you? Well, you did do something here. <laughs> no, it's all God. Go, go to 1 Corinthians real fast. I know we've got, we got to finish up. We're, I'm running out of time here. 1 Corinthians, watch this. This is, And we'll come back to this next week. And 1 Corinthians, watch this. I'm, I'm talking about the, the subtlety of relying on, on you, yourself, to, to bring success in life for ministry. It's all God. Who does God pick? Over first Corinthians, who does God pick to set his people free or lead the people out of Egypt? Moses. What was up with Moses? Moses, like, I I I stutter, God. I can't speak. Don't don't send me. Who am I? By the way, 40 years before, Moses killed a guy. Well, that's a whole nother story. No, here's a guy who's 80 years old. He should be retired playing golf somewhere, right? He's 80 years old and God appears to him in a burning bush and said, God says, go to Pharaoh. He says, who am I to go to Pharaoh? I can't talk, right? I'm just, that's Moses who stutters. I can't talk. God says, who made man's mouth? Who made man deaf or mute? I did. God says, I don't need your clarity of speech. I don't need your eloquence. Because if you were eloquent, you would get the glory, not me. You see that? I don't need your great intellect. I'll use people with great intellect and eloquence. I'll use those people, of course. But in this case, I got nothing to offer you. I'm just a man. In the backside of the mountain, raising sheep, go anyway. Now go back to First Corinthians. You guys there? Okay. Watch this. This tendency, this temptation to rely on man's strengths was, and the notoriety of men was very prevalent in the Corinthian church. 
Verse 10. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.10. And then we're going to lead into communion. Have communion, the Lord's Supper, and then we'll finish. I should never overpromise. <laughs> now I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. By the way, the Corinthian church were impressed with people. They were impressed with people's intellect, their ability to reason, their lives, their wisdom. They were impressed with that. Who's who and what's what and who's in and who's that? Verse 11, For I have been informed concerning you, my brothers, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. You guys are arguing. Now, I mean this. Verse 12, That each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul. I am of, I have Apollos. I'm of Cephas. Well, I'm of Christ. I, here's the scene. I don't know if it's ladies kneeling together, you know, or guys playing cards together, you know, and they're you know, going around the table. Well, I follow Paul, you know. I go, I, he's my guy. Well, I'm, I, I follow Peter, right? Well, P- Apollos, he's eloquent. I don't know about you guys. Apollos can, can speak like nobody's. Been. Well, I'm of Jesus and slaps down the card and says, I want this. Here's what's happening. They were looking to the personality, the person, and say, well, I'm in their camp. Oh. And Paul says, what you're doing here is close to heresy. We Americans do it all the time, don't we? Don't follow man. Don't put your hope in a man. He'll let you down. Sooner or later, he'll let you down. Because guess what? He's just a man. Pilate and the rest of them inspected Jesus Christ and found no sin within him. Pilate says, I find nothing in this man to condemn and I find no sin in him. And they brought witness after witness to try to testify falsely against Jesus and no one can be consistent because they all said, there is no sin in this man. Pilate says, I'm washing my hands clean. This man is innocent. If there's one man you want to follow that has been inspected and scrutinized in the deepest level, it's Jesus Christ. So if you're going to put yourself, your hope in one person, put it in Jesus Christ. Amen? Because he's passed the test. Whether it's in the wilderness with the tempter, or whether it's in the garden, and Jesus says, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Whether it's on the cross, he's like this, and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Please forgive them. He has passed the test. He has found without blame or blemish. He's the one man that you want to follow. Because there will be no accusation against him, no dark spot, no surprises, no, oh, have you heard this? This has just come out. Have you heard so-and-so fell into this? None of that. Praise God. So put your hope in Jesus Christ. It is him we follow. Yes, he has people that that he appoints as leaders and things like that. But don't put your hope in them. Pray for them. Pray for them. Because they're just a man. Even Paul says, pray for me, that God gives me words. It's Jesus Christ that we worship. No man do we worship. Don't be surprised if a man falls, or a woman falls, or a leader falls. Don't take, you pray for that person. You see, I can't imagine the amount of pressure that they're in. The amount of stress and, and, and temptation that is, that is in that per, that's surrounding that person. God, surround that person with godly leaders, with people that will pray for that man. It's Jesus Christ we look to, amen? We want to celebrate the Lord's Supper as we're thinking about and meditating on, on and considering our Lord and Savior I want to ask you just to take a few minutes. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is something for believers. We call the Lord's Supper. It's something that we do. We do it here at Resurrection Church once a month only because of setup and everything. Lord willing, one day we'll have it every Sunday. But we have it to honor the Lord, to remember the Lord. 
his sacrifice, which was the most significant event in history, that and the resurrection, the most significant event in history. And Jesus Christ passed all the tests that were thrown at him. And so I want you to invite you right now, just a few minutes, just to pray. And then as you feel led, come on up and grab one of the crackers, one of the bread, and then juice. And then go back, and then we'll, we'll pray together and take it together. For those of you who are gluten-sensitive, I have uh, the ground dishes. The round dishes have the gluten-free stuff. So take a few minutes, and then as the Lord leads you, come on up, go back to your seat. <clears throat> it's, this is a sacred moment when we partake of the Lord's Supper. It's... Something that he uh, obviously instituted with his disciples on the Last Supper, which was a, a Passover Seder um, that remembers the, the Passover, the freedom of the Israelites from Egypt. And Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And I imagine the disciples had no idea what was coming next, but he instituted this uh, practice for us to remember him by. And so this is a very sacred moment, and we hold in our hands the elements, the bread and the, and the juice. And... Uh, I want to read for you, uh, to you from uh, the Gospel of Matthew. It says, Now they were eating. While they were eating, he took some bread. Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it. And giving it to his disciples, he said, Take, eat, this is my body. Now he would have pronounced a Jewish ble- a, a blessing that every Jew would have done on that Passover. But then what he does is says, This is my body. And originally this was broken was the lamb. Now he says, now this is my body. And the significance went, the whole thing went, uh, was very significant. And so let's pray. Father, we just thank you that you gave your son to not just overcome temptation. In fact, Lord, we are thankful that he lived a perfect life, that every temptation through who's thrown his way he resisted and relied on you. Every test he passed, he was a lamb that was unblemished. And we think we hold in our hand this bread that is broken, that has stripes on it, has pierces in it, that symbolize the brokenness and the stripes that, that our Lord and Savior took on the cross. And so we thank you, Lord, that your body was broken for us. You took our place, and we are forever grateful. We ask your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Let's partake together of the bread. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks... He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In the Old Testament, it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. In the Old Testament, there were many animals that were sacrificed that were sort of a, a placeholder until the time when God's ultimate sacrifice would come, and his blood was spilt for each one of us, every person, at the sound of my voice, his blood was spilt for you. And only his blood can wash away your sins. Lord, we thank you for the precious blood of Jesus that was shed. We thank you, Lord, that there was no stain or sin found within him and that he willingly went to the cross, and that because that blood was shed, 
Our sins have been atoned for. Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God for us. And Lord, we are forever grateful. We thank you, Lord, that you died on the cross for our sins in our place as the Lamb of God. Let's taste and see that the Lord is is indeed truly good. Praise God, praise God. That wasn't the end of the story because three days later he rose again, amen. Amen. And he's alive today. Alive. Why don't we stand up? Speaking of alive, (laughs) he has given us new life. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a new person. If you're not a follower and you would like to become a follower, talk to me and I'll talk and pray with you. That's what it's all about. God forbid you should come to a church or hear a message or sing songs and leave unchanged or leave still spiritually dead. The whole point of all this is souls. That's it. Souls. Because your life is precious. Your soul is extremely precious. It costs Jesus Christ's life for your soul. But the blessings of God for the redeemed, oh, there's joy. There's joy. We might not feel it all the time in heaven or on earth, but in heaven, most, uh, most, uh, most undeniably, there's joy. And there's times on this earth when we have that joy, and there's times we're like, Lord, <laughs> come quickly, right? But here's the deal. Your life is like a, a drop or a, a vapor that's here today, gone tomorrow. In heaven, we're going to be celebrating. We're rejoicing. The prayer now Let's take as many people with us as possible. Let us pray for our neighbors. Let us ask for divine appointments. Whether it's a smile, whether it's a word of encouragement, let us be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading. Because it's, it's not, those, those encounters aren't chance. They're God-ordained. And he's called each one of us, not just me on a Sunday morning, each one of us to go out there and be light in the world and win for other, others for Christ. Well, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. My prayer for you in Jesus' name. God bless you guys. Um, if you wouldn't mind just taking your cups, and I think there's a garbage in the back. You can that. Fellowship, pray with one another, hang out. Otherwise, we'll see you guys, Lord willing, on Saturday. God bless you guys. Amen.